Well, this is going to be the last lesson in the study of Revelation. When we get to the fall festivals, we're going to find that they teach about these last days spoken of in the book of Revelation as well, and so we'll learn much more about these last days. And I'm going to give you kind of a taste of that tonight. In the fall feast, we find the protection and the sheltering of the people of God. We find a shadow of the judgment of the wicked, a shadow of the messianic kingdom, and finally, the return of the righteous to eternity. All of these things are wrapped up in the fall festivals. The study of the festivals may be one of the more important studies that I've done, along with the temple study. In finishing Revelation, we open today with the righteous rejoicing over the defeat and judgment of God upon the wicked and also the messianic banquet. So we'll start with chapter 19, verse 6. And it says, Then I heard something like the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of rushing waters, or like the rumbling of a powerful thunder, saying, Hallelujah, for Adonai Elohei Sevaot reigns. And so today, we're going to cover key points about the Messianic kingdom. We're going to touch on eternity with God that Yeshua has secured for the righteous. And so after the judgment of the wicked, Revelation speaks of the wedding of the Lamb. And if we go to 2 Corinthians, Paul tells us something about the wedding of the Lamb as well. Chapter 11, verse 2 says, I am jealous over you with a godly jealousy, for I betrothed you to one husband to present you to Messiah as a pure virgin. And so Paul tells us that we are betrothed to the Messiah. He tells the Corinthians that in sharing the gospel with them, he acted as the friend of the bridegroom in presenting them to Yeshua. You see, the friend of the bridegroom in ancient Israel was one who tended to the preparation of the wedding and as a go-between between the groom and the bride. You see, they didn't see each other during the betrothal. And so here we're told that we are betrothed and we should be looking forward to the day that we're going to be united with Yeshua, not just betrothed any longer, but wed to the Messiah, one with him forever. And something we should understand is that in ancient Israel, the betrothal period lasted for more than a year. And so the friend of the bridegroom facilitated during that year. And we can see this in the life of of Joseph and Miriam. They were betrothed, and it was during this period of betrothal that the angel of Adonai visited Miriam, and the Holy Spirit overshadowed Miriam, and both during this betrothal period. You see, the groom would actually go away and prepare a place for the bride, and the bride would prepare herself for the day of the wedding. And the place that he would prepare for her was usually in the home of the groom's father. Well, here in Revelation speaks of the time of that betrothal, it's over, and the wedding has come. And it speaks of a banquet and a celebration that we'll pick up in verse 7 of chapter 19. Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory. For the wedding of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. She was given fine linen to wear, bright and clean. Fine linen stands for the righteous deeds of the Kedeshim, or the saints. Then the angel tells me, write how fortunate are those who have been invited to the wedding banquet of the Lamb. He also tells me these are the true words of God. It says that the bride was given fine linen and it was given to her because of her righteous deeds. And what are those righteous deeds? They are for the most part the positive commands of God. Those things that you do in life to help others. 
the compassionate acts, the gifts to the poor, the care of the widow and the orphans, those things you did to help others and those things you did to further the kingdom of God. And if we look at Perkeavot, which means the saints of the fathers, we find this as well. Rabbi Jacob says, this world is like a hallway to the future world. Prepare yourself in the hallway that you may enter into the banquet hall. He used to say, more precious is one hour in repentance and good deeds in this world than all the life of the world to come. And more precious is one hour of tranquility of the world to come than all of the life of this world. And so if we look to the first century, this is what would come to thought, come to the minds of those who read this book and saw these words, righteous acts and good deeds. And if we look to Paul, he actually tells the Corinthians much the same thing. He says in Ephesians, for we are his workmanship created in Messiah Yeshua for good deeds, which God prepared beforehand that we might walk in them. We were created actually in Messiah to do good deeds. So understand these are the things that are important to God, the things that we will be rewarded for. They are things that show that we are betrothed to the Messiah. If you remember, Yeshua said, love one another as I have loved you. By this, the world will know that you are my disciples. And I think after reading this, we might reword that to say, by this, the world will know that you are my betrothed. And so next, John speaks of the wedding supper. The way this is worded, it sounds like the supper may even depend on just these righteous acts. Then the angel tells me, write how fortunate are those who have been invited to the wedding banquet of the Lamb. He also tells me these are the true words of God. So first, let's look at some of the places in Scripture that we find this wedding supper. We find it in Isaiah chapter 25 and verse 6. On this mountain, Adonai Sevaot will prepare a lavish banquet for all peoples, a banquet of aged wine, of rich food, of choice marrow, of aged wine well refined. On this mountain, he will swallow up the shroud that enfolds all peoples, the veil spread over the nations. And so while it does not say wedding supper here, it speaks of the wedding supper. And this is the first thing that we should note is that it's for all peoples those from every nation that have put their confidence in God, the God of Abraham and his son Yeshua. And second, notice that he will have swallowed up the shroud that covers the nations. Paul tells us that Israel received a hardening and they have been blinded. He also tells us that the adversary has blinded the minds of others so that they cannot see the glory of the gospel. All of this is going to be removed from Israel and the nations all who have put their trust in Yeshua. And the banquet is something that we can find in Jewish tradition as well. I pulled this up out of the Babylonian Talmud, Berchot, and it says, No eye has seen it. Rabbi Yehoshua ben Levi said, This is the wine that has been preserved in its grapes since the six days of creation, of which no eye has ever seen. And the Midrash Rabbah, chapter 13, says, In the hereafter, the Holy One, blessed be he, will prepare a feast for the righteous in the Garden of Eden. Israel says to the Holy One, blessed be he, can the master of the house make a feast for his visitors and not sit down to the table with them? Or shall the bridegroom prepare a feast for his guests and not sit down with them? 
If it please thee, let my beloved come into his garden and eat his precious fruits. The point being is that this banquet for the righteous was not lost on the rabbis. And here in Revelation, we're actually told that it is a wedding banquet. And so it would seem that it's reserved for those who have put their trust in Yeshua and walked in his footsteps. And we've been speaking over the last few weeks about who that's going to be. But Yeshua speaks of this feast as well in Matthew chapter 8. Now when Yeshua came to Capernaum, a centurion came begging for help. Master, he said, my servant is lying at home paralyzed, horribly tormented. And Yeshua said to him, I'll come and heal him. But the centurion said, Master, I'm not worthy to have you come under my roof, but just say the word and my servant will be healed. For I am a man under authority with soldiers under me, and I say to this one, go, and he goes to another, come, and he comes. To my servant, do this, and he does it. Now when Yeshua heard this, he marveled and said to those who were following, Amen, I tell you, I have not found anyone in Israel with such great faith. Moreover, I tell you that many will come from the east and the west and they will recline at table with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. And so again, this too speaks of this feast. It speaks of the kingdom of heaven that will be upon the earth at that time. And this continues, this feast and this messianic kingdom uh, being spoken of continues in chapter 20, verses one through 10, we speak of the Messianic kingdom and the reign of Messiah, the thousand years. And then we have another judgment. Well, here's the problem. Most people don't know that there's a difference between the Messianic kingdom, which is a thousand years in duration, and what follows. And I think we can better understand it and if we look at the festival of tabernacles, or in Hebrew, Sukkot, because it's a shadow of these end of days, as I said, the Feast of Sukkot is a shadow of the Messianic kingdom. All of the feasts of Adonai foreshadow what God is going to do in the earth. And when we study these fall feasts, beginning next week, we're going to study things that show that the scriptures speak of these festivals as foreshadowing what God is doing in the world. And Sukkot is no different. It foreshadows the messianic kingdom, the kingdom of Yeshua. If we go to Jeremiah, it speaks of the kingdom of Yeshua. In chapter 33, it says, For thus says Adonai, For David will not be cut off a man from sitting on the throne of the house of Israel, nor will the Levitical Kohanim ever lack a man before me to offer burnt offering, to burn grain offerings, and to make sacrifices continually. And so this is speaking of the kingdom, and here we're told that David's son will sit on the throne, and of course, his son is Yeshua. And notice what else it says. We're told that during this time, the Levites are going to be offering burnt offerings and sacrifices. That tells us that during this time, during the Messianic kingdom, the temple services will be taking place. The daily offerings will be taking place. And when we come to the end of chapter 21, we're told there is no temple telling us that there's something after the kingdom of Messiah and that something is new. Isaiah speaks of the kingdom in chapter 4, verse 2 and through 6. He says, In that day the branch of Adonai will be beautiful and glorious and the fruit of the land excellent and appealing for Israel's survivors. So it will come to pass that whoever is left in Zion and whoever remains in Jerusalem will be called holy. 
everyone who is recorded among the living in Jerusalem after Adonai has washed away the filth of the daughters of Zion and has purged the blood of Jerusalem from her midst by a spirit of judgment and by a spirit of burning, then Adonai will create over the whole area of Mount Zion and over her convocations a cloud by day and a smoke and shining flame of flaming fire by night. For over all the glory will be a canopy and there will be a sukkah for shade by day from heat and for a refuge and a shelter from the storm and the rain. See, this speaks of the Messianic kingdom and here we're told that the Zemach, the, the branch of Adonai, speaking of the kingdom, and look at what it says. There's going to be a cloud by day and a fire by night. Where have we seen that before? How about Israel's wilderness journey? It says, for a cloud, the cloud of Adonai was on the tabernacle by day and a fire was there by night in the sight of all of the house of Israel through all their journeys. And then what did our verse say? It says there will be a sukkah. And when did Israel dwell in sukkahs? During the feast of Sukkot. Listen to what else it says about the feast of Sukkot in chapter 23 of Leviticus. You are to live in sukkah for seven days. All the native born in Israel are to live in a sukkah. They live in Sukkot. So that your generations may know that I had B'nai Israel to dwell in Sukkot when I brought them out of the land of Egypt. I am Adonai your God. I want to read one more passage about Sukkot because it's going to be important as we continue. It's in Deuteronomy chapter 16 and it says this. You are to keep the feast of Sukkot for seven days after gathering in your produce from your threshing floor and the wine press. So you will rejoice in your feast. You, your son and your daughter, slave and maid, Levite and outsider, orphan and widow within your gates. Seven days you will feast to Adonai, your God, in the place he chooses. Because Adonai, your God, will bless you in all your produce and all the works of your hand. You will be completely filled with joy. Now you can see, just from what's said here, you can see how Adonai intended this feast to be a shadow of Yeshua's kingdom. Seven days, everyone is going to rejoice and have all they need or want. The rich, the poor, the widow, the orphan, all will have all they need celebrating alike. No rich, no poor, but at this feast, they all have the same joy because they're all eating from the Lord's tithe. They're eating at Adonai's table. You see, the whole of Sukkot and all of the joy of the feast foreshadows Yeshua's kingdom and this wedding feast. Now let's read one more. Verse 39 of Leviticus chapter 23. On the 15th day of the seventh month, when you have gathered in the fruits of the land, you are to keep a feast of Adonai for seven days. The first day to be a Shabbat rest. And the eighth day will also be a Shabbat rest. And so we have this shadow of the kingdom for seven days, the Feast of Sukkot. But then what's this eighth day all about? We're to keep a shadow of the kingdom for seven days and then there's an eighth day that is also a Sabbath rest. This is all that's said of that eighth day. But what does it foreshadow? Well, it foreshadows what comes after the kingdom of Yeshua. It foreshadows the Olam Haba, in Hebrew, Olam Haba, in English, the world to come. Following the 1,000-year reign of Yeshua upon the earth, it's connected to Sukkot, to the shadow of the Messianic kingdom, but it's separate as well. And this is the only one of Adonai's festivals that has such an eighth day attached to it. And again, 
it foreshadows the eternity that we're going to spend with God. Well, what I want you to see is that chapter 19, we have this wedding feast. And at the start of chapter 20, we have the reign of Yeshua for a thousand years. And then we have a final judgment, the great white throne judgment. And this is the final judgment of Adonai. And it's going to be an earth-shattering judgment. Let's read about it. Then I saw a great white throne and the one seated on it, the earth and the heaven fled from his presence, but no place was found for them. And this is where not even the earth and the sky can escape the appearance of God as judge. Even the earth and all that's in it, the sky and all the heavens cannot escape the appearance of God and the judgment that's going to follow. And here's the judgment of God. We're told that no one can see God in his glory and live. At the sight of God, the wicked, not just the wicked, but the entire heavens and earth and this world order are coming to an end. And this will make way for a new heaven and a new earth that we will read about in the next chapter, what's called the Olam Haba. Daniel speaks of it. He says in chapter 7, While I was watching, thrones were set up, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His garment was white as snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was ablaze with flames, its wheels a burning fire. A river of fire was flowing and coming out from before him. Thousands upon thousands attended him. Ten thousands times ten thousand stood before him. The court was seated and the books were open. And the books that are going to be open are the Lamb's Book of Life and the Book of the Wicked. And this judgment is eternal. It's the final judgment. Verse 15 says, If anyone was not found written in the Book of Life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. With this judgment, the way is made for new heavens and a new earth, which we're going to read about in chapter 21 and the first five verses of chapter 22. Our first clue comes in chapter 21 in verse 1. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. Verse 1 tells us that this earth and heaven, in other words, the present world order and the effects of that world order are going to pass away. And friends, that's what I call real climate change. It says there's no sea. And remember, the sea and the rivers were the home of Leviathan, that twisted serpent. Psalm 27 opens with this. It says, in that day, Adonai will punish Leviathan, the fleeing serpent, with his fierce, great, strong sword. Leviathan, the twisted serpent, he will slay the dragon in the sea. Peter tells us something very similar in 2 Peter chapter 3. He says, but the day of the Lord will come like a thief. And on that day the heavens will pass away with a roar and the elements will melt and disintegrate and the earth and everything done on it will be exposed. Since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, what kind of people should we be? Live your lives in holiness and godliness, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God. In that day the heavens will be dissolved by fire and the elements will melt in intense heat. But in keeping with his promise, we look for the new heavens and the new earth where righteousness dwells. Isaiah speaks of it in several places. I pulled down just one, Isaiah 66. For just as the new heavens and the new earth 
which I make will endure before me. It is a declaration of Adonai, so your descendants and your name will endure. And so we have a new heavens and a new earth. We should understand that Yeshua, through John, is not really trying to give us a complete description of what the new heavens and the new earth are going to be. He can't do that because what are we told about it? We're told that no eye has seen, no ear has heard the things that God has for the people who love him. But what John is trying to do is he's keeping in line with his opening words of revelation. Blessed is the one who reads the words of this prophecy. And in chapter 21 is meant to give hope of the good things that God has in store without describing what we're told is indescribable. Think about it. Can anybody here describe what eternity is? I'd love to know if you can describe it. Is it countless days and years? Is it no time at all? The point being is our minds can't really grasp eternity because we're stuck here in time. God made time and we're here until he takes us to eternity. The point being, we're being told some of what eternity will look like. It's vague, but let's look at a few of these verses. Chapter 21, verse 2. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down from heaven, out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And so here we should understand that this is new and comparing it to what is old is about as fruitful as trying to understand the third temple of Ezekiel by comparing it to the second temple. Some of the things we can understand from what we learn is that Jerusalem here more likely refers not only to what we're going to read about in chapter 21, but also all of the new residents. It's not just buildings, but it's the people of God, the new Jerusalem that's coming down. Verse 3 says, Then I, I also heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling of God is among men, and he shall tabernacle among them, and they shall be his people, and God himself shall be among them and be their God. And so what we see here is that the original reason that God made man is being fulfilled at this time. He will dwell with his people, just as he did in the garden with Adam before the fall. And we learn who's going to dwell with him in verses 6 and 7. Then he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will freely give from the spring of water of life. The one who overcomes shall inherit these things. And I will be his God and he shall be my son. And so what does it mean to overcome? Well, we've learned in the book of Revelation that those who overcome are those who don't compromise with this present world order. They are those who relied on Yeshua rather than their own strength. And often, because of these things, they are those who suffered persecution in their life. But I can give you a really good idea of what it means to overcome just by looking at the first one we're told who overcame. In Genesis chapter 32, verse 25, it says, So Jacob remained by himself, and then a man wrestled with him until the break of dawn. And when he saw that he could not overcome him, he struck the socket of his hip so that it was dislocated, the socket of Jacob's hip. And when he wrestled with him, then he said, Let me go, for dawn has broken. But he said, I won't let you go unless you bless me. And then he said to him, what is your name? 
Jacob, he said. And then he said, your name will no longer be Jacob, but rather Israel, because you have struggled with God and with men, and you have overcome. And so Jacob wrestles with God, with a man. He wrestles with God and with men, and he overcomes. And we can easily understand what is meant by Jacob wrestling with men. It would be the same thing as not compromising with the world. But how did he overcome God? Well, Hosea gives us the answer in chapter 12, verse 5. It says, Yes, he wrestled with an angel and won. He wept and sought his favor. At Bethel, he will find us, and there he will speak with us. And so what does it say? Jacob wrestled with an angel, a messenger. It's actually Yeshua. And it says he won. And then he says he wept and he begged for his favor. Well, who wept? It wasn't Yeshua that wept. Jacob wept, just as all who meet Yeshua weep for what they've done. And from that day forward, he followed God. You don't read anything bad about Jacob from that day forward. He overcame. And the one who overcomes is the one who finds Yeshua, who weeps and asks for forgiveness, and then follows in the footsteps of Yeshua. In other words, changes his life. Verse 9 of chapter 21. Then came one of seven angels holding the seven bowls of the final plagues, and he spoke with me, and he says, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And then he carried me away in the Ruach to a great high mountain, and he showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. And so again, here we are describing this new Jerusalem, and John is giving us a glimpse into what really can't be described. We see the new Jerusalem and the bride being described together, and he speaks of the building materials of the city after that. And these building materials are things that the world thinks of as most valuable in this age. Jewels and gold. Streets of gold. Imagine that. Streets paved with gold. Things that the world hoarded because they thought of them as precious. However, John speaks of them as mere construction materials in the world to come. In other words, what was precious in this life was not precious in the world to come. And I'm reminded of a story, it's a funny story. And that is, there was a rich man, and he took all he had and he turned it into gold. And when he died, he took the gold with him, and he gets to the gates of heaven. Peter says to him, you can't take that stuff in here. And he says, no, I have special permission. I prayed, I asked God, and he told me I could take these bricks of gold with me. And he says, well, okay, take them with you. And then he says to the angel standing next to him, I don't know what he's going to do with those paving stones. You see, what's valuable in this life has no value in the kingdom. And that's why we're told you have streets of gold. Verse 22 says, I saw no temple in her, for its temple is Adonai, Elohei, Savaot, and the Lamb. And the city has no need for the sun nor the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God lights it up, and its lamp is the Lamb. The nations shall walk by its light, and the kings of the earth bring their glory into it. Its gates shall never be shut by day, for there shall be no night there. And they shall bring into it glory and honor of the nations, and nothing unholy shall ever enter it, nor anyone doing what is detestable or false, but only those written in the book of life. And so what will be is that the people of God and Adonai and Messiah will dwell there and there's going to be no need of the things of this world 
And we're told something about eternity here. It says there's going to be no sun or moon. How do we keep track of days? By the sun and the moon. You see, there's no time here. We're in eternity. It says there's only day, no night. There will be nothing impure telling us that God will indeed dwell here. And the first five verses of chapter 22 go on to describe the city. And it repeats what we were really told at the start of the book in verse 7. It says, Behold, I'm coming soon. How fortunate is the one who keeps the words of this prophecy, of the prophecy of this book. And here, its point is more on keeping the words of this book. In other words, blessed are those who keep from the influence of this present world order and keep the words of this book. Verse 15 says, Outside are the dogs, the sorcerers, the sexually immoral, the murderers and the idolaters, and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. And then verse 14 says, How fortunate are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life and may enter through the gates of the city. And so again, it speaks of those who have made Yeshua Lord and followed in his footsteps, are given the right to eat from the tree of life, and those who have not, well, they're on the outside. Verses 1 through 5 of chapter 22 describe the kingdom as it says, And then the angel showed me a river of water, of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb down the middle of the city street. Remember what I told you about this is a tale of two cities, Babylon? Well, what did Babylon have flowing down the center of its streets, through the center of the city? waters but here the city of god the waters bring life and in the city of babylon they brought death so again as i said at the beginning this is a tale of two cities two kingdoms chapter 22 verse 3 says on either side of the river was a tree of life bearing 12 kinds of fruit yielding its fruit each month and the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations no longer will there be any curse the throne of god and of the lamb shall be in the city and his servants shall serve him, and they shall see his face, and his name shall be on their foreheads. Night shall be no more, and the people will have no need for lamplight or sunlight, for Adonai Elohim will shine on them, and they shall reign forever. And where it says there will no longer be a curse, what brought about the curse? Sin. And so if there's no curse, there's no sin. Where... The world could not see his face and live. Those who enter into eternity are going to see the face of God and they're going to live. Those who have put their lives and their trust in God and his Messiah will see his face and live. The last of chapter 22 speaks of Yeshua's coming and the things that will condemn those and the things that will lead others to the kingdom. And so we're going to leave off here. You can read the rest for yourself. It's pretty simple. Next week, we'll begin with the festivals.